In this new episode, I speak with serial entrepreneur and founder of a healthy wine company called Dry Farm Wines, uh, Mr. Todd White. So uh, this company is not only called Dry Farm Wines, but it's also a farming practice. Todd gets into what that practice is, what biodiversity or biodynamic and natural wines are, um, how dry farming as an agricultural practice is a good thing for the planet. And the uh, mission behind this company and how he even manages the corporate culture, uh, that wellness lifestyle is a core tenet in leadership. Uh, so I think you're going to enjoy it. You're going to get some good technical background on how wines are made, how a lot of the manufactured wines are actually not that great for you, and why dry farm wines and biodynamic, low alcohol, no sugar wines still provide an enjoyable beverage, uh, but is much more healthy for you. So sit back, enjoy, and... My guest today is Todd White, founder of Dry Farm Wines. Welcome, Todd, to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. Happy to be here. Lots of dirty, dark secrets about the wine business. Great. Uh, we'll get a chance to unpack that. So restroom recovery, we're... Uh, focused on wellness and, and, and health. And from what I've learned about you and your background and your personal wellness journey, that um, that's a core tenet to you and, and who you are and related to dry farm wines. Could you just expand on that? Yeah. So I've been a biohacker before it was called biohacking, right? Probably for about 20 years. And uh, as the movement started to take shape, I guess my journey really began aside from fitness as a kid, but as an adult with experimenting with the Atkins diet, which is really modified ketogenic diet. And, and so that was back in the eighties and I was using it much the same way other people were using without really understanding it well at the time, but we're using it to deal with weight loss plateaus. And so that was kind of the beginning of my serious commitment to biohacking. And I define biohacking as the art and science of how we employ our behavior to influence our biological or neurological outcome. And so diet is the behavior. Diet is biohack. And so that was kind of the beginning of my journey. And then from there, about six years ago, I became ketogenic, um, like legitimately ketogenic. Today, I'm on a modified ketogenic diet. So I have some carb intake, but not a lot. I also only eat once a day now. I've been eating once a day, doing 22-hour fast for about three years now. And so it's pretty easy to stay in ketosis if you're only eating once per day. Right. And, you, yeah. and you eat moderately low carbohydrate. But I'm, when, I was, when I was experimenting with therapeutic ketogenic diet, you know, I was doing regular blood testing and, you know, really excelling to try and get my BHB very high and, you know, this kind of silliness that was going on in the biohacking movement at the time. But uh, to be on a therapeutic ketogenic diet, which is, you know, 80% fat, calories coming from 70 to 80% fat, it's, uh, it's, it's quite boring over time. So, sure. There's a limit so of menu options, I suppose. There are, although I still don't eat refined carbohydrate. Um, the only thing I eat that's not really on program, just because I happen to like it, is I occasionally have French fries, just because I just like them. Yeah, you can't go wrong with a good French fry. And so, um, but again, I don't eat bread or anything, or rice or corn, or, you know, potatoes only have fries. So when I became ketogenic six years ago and started experimenting with that movement and and at that time, the ketogenic movement was just really taking form. Only biohackers really knew what it was six years ago. And it then, about three years ago, it, it went mainstream and is now quite mainstream. But uh, when I started experimenting with the ketogenic diet and having a highly restrictive, um, a highly restrictive uh, dietary regimen, in, in addition to, I was in a quite stressful business at the time. So that could have impacted. I think, you know, I think stress has a lot to do with our health. But at that time, I couldn't drink standard wines anymore. They were making me sick. I was getting brain fog. They were giving me hangovers. They were affecting my, my 
cognitive abilities. And so I stopped drinking for a while. I've been drinking wine since I was nine years old. And so this was, this is sort of the journey of, you know, and I have this lifelong love affair with wine and I love wine today. I don't like alcohol and we'll talk about alcohol on the podcast today. Alcohol is a very dangerous neurotoxin and it, it surprises people to, to hear the wine guy say that alcohol is a dangerous neurotoxin, but it is, which is why I only drink and sell lower alcohol wines. Now we'll talk about that later, but so I began, I stopped drinking for a while and then I accidentally learned from a friend that there was some lower alcohol wines available in Europe, none in the, none in the United States, none produced in the United States. And so I, uh, this is long before what's now become a very um, chic, low alcohol movement now with hard seltzers and, you know, there's, there's, there's alcohols coming down. Right. Right. Because I, I love wine. I don't love alcohol. A little bit goes a long ways, but too much is not a great thing. Yeah, and it's so, a bit countercultural too, even just <clears throat> from an advertising and business perspective. That's what you see is kind of the inverse to that. And even just culturally, it's go out and party. That's why you go to college. Right. Well, I had decided six-ish years ago that I wanted to drink less. I just didn't want to stop drinking wine. So I heard about lower alcohol wines in Europe, and then that caused me to stumble quite accidentally. I wasn't thinking of it as a business at the time. I was trying to find a better way to drink. And so when I stumbled upon the, natu- the, the lower alcohol wines, then I accidentally stumbled upon the natural wine revolution that was starting at the time really getting, getting hold in central France. And we'll talk about what natural wine is. It's a confusing term to con- consumers because – I say I sell natural wines and they're like, well, aren't all wines natural? And for reasons I'm going to describe for you, they are not. Now the wine industry has fooled millions and millions of people to believe that wine is a healthy drink, but in fact, it usually contains toxins other than just alcohol. And we'll talk about what those are and what those can be and how dangerous those are. So, so I, you know, once I discovered these additive free natural wines, then I started lab testing them. Again, this is before it was a business. I was just trying to quantify. I live in the Napa Valley, which is the most famous wine appellation in North America. Right. I had made wine in 2005 here in the Napa Valley. So I knew something about analogy and I knew about analogy labs. And so I started taking these natural wines that I liked and then subjecting them to lab tests to come up with a kind of a quantified formula, right? Of how I felt, how it tastes, and then what the lab results were. And then started putting some quantifications around that, as you would if you were biohacking anything. You start quantifying it. And right? personalizing it and just understanding. Right. So that happened, and then I identified these wines, and I started drinking them, and I started sharing them with my other health-focused friends, and one in particular who was, you know, who was an endurance athlete and Ironman and, and – um, and we had often talked about, you know, we would drink too much or, you know, how get up the hangover or whatever. And it's like, listen, this wine that I'm drinking is like kind of hangover free. And, you know, you have to drink like a massive amount of it to feel any kind of negative remnant in the next day. And he was, <clears throat> and he's was also a biohacker and he was like, oh. so we started drinking it together. And he's like, I think this is a business because, you know, I didn't, I wanted to drink less, but I don't want to stop drinking wine. I wanted to feel better. And I thought, you know, there's probably a few million other people out there in America who want exactly what I want, which is to drink less, feel better and still have great wine. And so that's sort of when it accidentally became a business. And uh, today we're the largest importer and reseller of natural wines in the world. That's an amazing story. Yeah. You know, as a personal consumer, you know, you want the positive benefits, but not necessarily the negative uh, consequences to it. The way you wake up in the morning, or you mentioned brain frog, uh, lack of clarity, whether it's in the moment or not, it's just certainly something that uh, most of us I'm sure would like to avoid. Yeah. So it was, so let's break down for a moment. What we'll talk about the health benefits of wine how wine is made, because all of these are related to the questions of how is your wine sugar-free, because we only sell sugar-free wine. That has to do with how it's made. You know, how does wine get 
the healthy compounds in it, the polyphenols, flavonoids, antiflavonoids that make, that impart positive health value. How does that get in wine? And why is it higher in red than white? We're going to cover all this, but let's start with what's happening with conventional wine, right? So the wine, you go in the grocery store and you look on the shelf and there's like, you know, a thousand bottles there where you go in a wine shop. Those are conventional wines. There's no natural wine. Natural wine is produced in such small volumes that they can't sell at retail like that. They're just, they're just less than one-tenth of one percent of wines in the world are grown and fermented naturally. And I'm going to tell you what that means. But for conventional wines, let's start off where the problem is. Conventional wines, what happened in our food supply, which was basically over a couple of decades, we had massive corporate consolidation. So now you've got 10 food companies that basically touch everything you put in your mouth, more or less. <coughs> The same thing happened in the wine business. Massive corporate consolidation surrounded by money and greed. So here's the thing. The top three wine companies in the United States make 52% of all the wine sold. The top 30 companies make over 70% of U.S. wines. So when you go into the grocery store and you see all those bottles, those, most of that wine is made by a handful of people in Central California in massive factories. I mean, like multiple football fields of factories and tank farms. And that's where this wine is made. Now, they've been very clever. They don't want you to know that. So these multi-billion dollar marketing conglomerates, they hide behind thousands of brands and labels to confuse you. So what they want you to think is that you're drinking from a farmhouse or a chateau. Right. They're going to sell you a story around it, right? But in fact, you're drinking from these massive factories. That's the fact. Now, the wine industry has been very good at keeping that secret. And the other thing they've been able to keep secret, with help from their friends in Washington, D.C., by spending millions of dollars in lobby money, one of the most powerful lobbies in the country, is that they've been able to keep contents labeling off of wine. This is very important. Wine is the only major food product without a contents label or nutritional information on it. That's not an accident. And here's why the wine industry doesn't want that on there. They don't want you to really know what's in a bottle of wine. Because, and let me stop here and just pause because these secrets are somewhat difficult to believe. But everything that I'm sharing with you is easily verifiable through Google searches. Industry size, industry leaders, annual production, ingredients, additives. So what I'm about to tell you is that you see there's 76 additives approved by the FDA for the use in winemaking. Now, some of them are quite natural. Some of them are not, and four of them are highly toxic. And one of them is so toxic that it has to be applied to the wine, and it is applied to tens of millions of gallons of California wine every year, and wine all over the United States and parts of the world. Called Valkyrin, the chemical is dimethyl dicarbonate. If you look dimethyl dicarbonate up on Wikipedia, it'll say hazard colon toxic. It's so toxic that it has to be applied by a specially licensed contractor who comes in in hazmat suits because if you breathe it, or it gets on your skin, or burn your lungs, or it would burn your skin. And we're consuming this. <clears throat> well, here's the thing. You don't know whether wine's been treated with it or not. But if you drank the treated wine within 24 hours of its treatment, it would kill you. Right? That's how toxic it is. So we don't know, or there's ammonia phosphate, or copper sulfate. We, we, we don't... You don't know what's in your wine. This is the whole point. Without a contents label, you don't have any way of knowing what's in it. And so we've advocated for contents labeling. We, we provide contents labeling and lab tests on our wine labels and available on our, on our wine library. And so we just think, look, if you want to buy wine that has dimethyl dicarbonate in it or ammonia phosphate, if you choose to drink that, I think that's okay. Because that's your right. Your personal choice. Sure. The problem is you don't have that choice. And so, so what, I, what I came to find out was not only lowering the alcohol made me feel better, but getting rid of all these toxins I didn't know about also made me feel a lot better. 
right? And when you're a biohacker and you're like super in tune with your body because you're nutritionally dialed up and you're, you know, you're, you, you have a strong fitness regimen and meditation practice and all the things that we do as a part of our kind of daily biohacking regiment and my entire staff are biohackers. And so, you know, when we, you know, when you're in touch with your body as you are, you can feel things, you know, you don't, you may not have scientific proof that these toxins in wine uh, are going to do something negative to you because nobody studied it. But you know, I love the proverb about biohacking to feel is to understand. Right. And so, right. Yeah, you know so, your body. You know yourself. Yeah, whether or not there's empirical proof, there's anecdotal evidence with yourself that something's wrong or right, right? right? And so, so that's you know, so a natural wine in our case, and we we are a bar above just being natural. So natural wine is an international category. There's no certification for it, uh, although France just announced this week that they were creating a certification for it. Up until this week, there's never been a certification for it. Now, my company, Dry Farm Wines, does have a certification program, and the wines we buy, drink, and sell must meet our stringent certifications. And I'm going to tell you what those are, and I'll tell you how they're higher or different than, than natural wine. So, and so, real quick, so that's the practice that y'all use when you work with these micro farmers across Europe and wherever you get your grapes? We get, we get wine from all over the world, just nothing in the United States. Okay. There's nothing in the United States that meets all of our criteria. So there are natural wines made in the United States, but they're not natural wines that meet all of our criteria. And I'll tell you what those differences are. So natural wines have an, an international understanding, although previously no certification, and now France is going to certify what natural wines mean. But everybody has everybody in the wine world has a basic understanding of what natural means. So natural wine means that it is grown organically or biodynamically, and biodynamic farming is a prescriptive form of organic farming. You can read about it on the internet. No reason to go down that wormhole. In our case, not true for all natural wines, certainly not in the United States, our wines are always irrigation-free. And most wines grown in Europe are also irrigation-free. Now, in the United States, more than 99.9% .9 of vineyards are irrigated. Dry farming in the United States is super rare. I mean, like, doesn't even move the needle. So dry farming isn't just the name of a company. It's a farming practice. It is a farming practice and a very vital one, not only for the quality of the wine and the health of the fruit, the health of the vine, the health of the earth, and your health. When a wine is irrigated, and what I'm telling you here is scientific fact. It's not my opinion. When a wine is organic and unirrigated, so there's no irrigation on it, and it's organically farmed, or it has higher polyphenols, which are the health-favorable compounds found in wines. We'll get to this in a moment. There are about 200-ish in white wines, and there are over 800 in red wines. And I'll tell you why in a moment, what the difference is and how it, why red wine has so much more health benefit. And if you hear... People recommend that you drink wine. It's typically, if it's for a health purpose, it's red wine. And the most famous polyphenol is called resveratrol. We'll get to that in a second. So organic, biodynamic, irrigation-free in our case. That's not a requirement for natural wines, but it is for us. Then number three, super important, is that natural wines are fermented with wild native yeast that are indigenous to the vineyard where the, grape is, where the grape is grown. Now, what does that mean? Well, on the skin of every wine berry, every wine grape in the world at the time of harvest, there is waxy yeast that's been collected on the skin of the fruit. It looks like a light wax, but it's actually yeast. 
Every wine grape has it. And that, that's inherent. That's natural occurring. It's naturally occurring that yeast is collected through the air in the vineyard, right? So it's a naturally occurring yeast. Now, with commercial wines, the first thing they do is, is pour sulfur dioxide into the tank, and they kill that native yeast. And then they inoculate it with a genetically modified lab-cultured and grown yeast. Now, why do they do that? Because you can't make natural, you can't make wine in very high quantities using these native yeasts. They're just too unstable, too temperamental to work with. They will not withstand a very high alcohol environment. And alcohol has been rising in commercial wines for, for three decades. And so these genetically modified lab cultured yeast will withstand a very high alcohol they can also be modified to have certain flavor profiles. So let's just say you grow this kind of terrible industrial grape in central California and you want it to taste like it's from the Mediterranean. You want it to taste like it's an Italian wine. They have a yeast for that, right? So all conventional wines, let me repeat, all conventional wines use this, this lab cultured yeast because it's easy to work with. It's very strong. It's not temperamental. doesn't require a lot of coddling. Number four, natural wines are additive-free. So the 76 additives that I talked to you about, they don't go in these wines, right? And so that basically, and then one other, two other standards that we have <clears throat> in addition to that is we don't sell any wines over 12.5% alcohol and as low as 7%. And then... And then, and most of the wines I drink are between nine and 11%. It's just the taste I like. And I like to drink a lot of wine so I can drink a lot of wine at 10% and, you know, doesn't really have much, doesn't have nearly the same impact that American wines today average about 15%. Okay. So average. Some are average. higher. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, Americans love big, bold, rich tastes, right? Biohackers, not so much because the way we eat. So we eat light, fresh, clean. You know, that's just how we eat. So we like lighter, fresher, cleaner taste. Americans eat big, bold, rich, processed. The other thing is when, you know, when you eat whole real food, it's your, your, your taste buds and your palate will adjust to a fresher taste, right? When you eat processed foods um, and, you know, and fast food and all this processed food, and all these chemicals and all this uh, fillers, you you lose taste sensation. You know you don't know what things taste like anymore. Yeah, and so um, so Americans like higher alcohol. They like this taste because alcohol. See, the higher the alcohol, also adds density to the wine. It adds um, it adds boldness to the wine. And so when you remove the alcohol, you remove some of the density and boldness, and you end up with a much lighter, fresher product, which is what my customers want to drink. But it tastes notably different. You can it, natural wine lower alcohol tastes notably different than a commercial wine. And yeah. of course you feel notably better. But uh, so that's, that's the primary difference is the other, the other requirement that we have in addition to the lower alcohol, that's not a natural wine criteria is that we require the wine to be sugar free. And that's a dry farm wines criteria. That's part of our certification. And we do lab testing for sugar because so how do you, so the lab testing, so part of the natural process, is that the byproduct of the sugar-free by, by going through It's not, process? it's not. So, so not all natural wines are sugar-free. Okay. That's just part of dry farm wine certification because we're ketogenic and I live a largely sugar-free lifestyle. Don't like sugar. I think sugar's the most widely toxic abused drug on the planet and leads to uh, any sundry of different health conditions and, and uh, you, you can pick a long list of things sugar can be blamed for. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so, and fortunately there are millions of other people who care about sugar too, which supports our business, but in wines, see sugar adds mouthfeel and sugar adds finish, you know, and glycerol, which is a high sugar byproduct adds finish, these long finishes, right? Or when you see like these, People think seeing legs in a glass of wine is like speaks to its quality. Actually, it speaks to the amount of glycerol that's in it. 
Oh, it's really? nothing to do with it's nothing to do with its quality. Just like you know, the reason that dyes and color agents are used in wines very often is because Americans also perceive that the darker a red wine is, the higher quality it is. There's no truth to that, and I would I would submit to you it's just the opposite. But but because Americans believe that darker red wines are richer and better, then you've got often two things. You've got extreme extractions. I'll tell you about that in a moment. We're going to go to this next. You've got extreme extractions by extended macerations, and I'll tell you what that means. And then you've got color agents. The most, the, the, the most pop- popular one is called um, um, Mega Purple, and it's a color agent used to make red wines darker. So let's go more, over the one. More additives. Yeah, it's an, it's an additive. Um, and so let's go over to the winemaking process, and I'm going to tell you how a wine becomes sugar-free or not and why uh, you have a difference in polyphenols in red and white and how a red wine gets darker through extractions and extended maceration and why that's bad, right? So, because there are two ways to get a red wine darker, longer extractions or color agents. Both are commonly used. So, I think Mega Purple may be the number one selling additive in the market. I don't know that, but I know it's wildly popular. And if you've ever seen somebody get purple teeth or purple, this is usually a color agent. Because, like, natural wines won't make your teeth purple or give you purple lips. Oh, wow. So, I did not uh, know. So anyway, the, when wine is made, you harvest the grape, and um, you press the, the, the juice from it in a, in a press, and the juice runs off into a tank. Now, if it's white wine, then our, our, every, there is an exception to this, but it's so rare that it's not worth talking about. There is something called orange wine, which is a skin contact white, but they're very rare. We sell them, but you would never see them commercially. For the, you could almost say all white wine, except this tiny portion of orange, but all white wines are then fermented. So yeast then activates in the fermentation process starts. If it's, if it's a commercial wine, they're going to kill the native yeast and then they inoculate it with this commercial yeast. And then the fermentation process begins, right? And in the fermentation process for both red and white wine, it works the same. The, the yeast eats the sugar. That's its food source. And once the yeast eats all of the available sugar, the yeast will die because it doesn't have any food source. And, the, and that, at that point, the wine will be fully fermented and sugar-free. What's happening in commercial wines is that prior to the fermentation process completing, the winemaker is using sulfur dioxide again to kill the yeast before it completes fermentation, leaving what's known as RS or residual sugar behind in the wine. That's how sugar gets in wine. It is not added to wine. It gets in wine because the winemaker kills the yeast before it eats all the sugar. So it's not just because it's a fruit and it's naturally occurring. It's actually through this intervention of commercial wines. Well, grape juice is full, full of sugar. And, it, and is, if the yeast eats all the sugar, then there's not going to be any sugar there anymore. But what's happening is prior to the yeast being able to complete that fermentation and eat all the sugar, they're killing the yeast, leaving residual sugar behind. But back to winemaking in red and white. So when you squeeze the juice from a red wine grape and you squeeze the juice from a white wine grape, they're both clear. Red wine gets its color from contact with the skin and and its tannic structure from, from the skins and the seeds. So when you make white wine, you press the juice off free run into a tank, no skin contact, and it starts fermenting once the yeast is activated. When you make red wine, you squeeze, you press off the juice the same way. It goes into a tank, but after you press it, you then pour the skins into the tank with it. And the skins are what gives the, the skins are what gives the, the, 
the 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 color to the the color to the wine and the seeds add to its tannin structure and the extra polyphenols remember early on we mentioned that there is just over 200 polyphenols and other health property compounds in white wine and there are almost 900 there are between 8 and 8 and 900 in red wine would the additional polyphenols and flavonoids and other healthy compounds the reason that they're higher in red wine is because they come from contact with the skin and the seeds right and right. so that's also how it gets its color so that's that this maceration and extraction that i talked about maceration is the period of time that the skins stay in contact with the juice and a common phrase in the in in the wine world is if a red wine is extracted and extracted is is a long maceration period right it also makes the wine darker the longer that and it gives the wine more body so the longer the skins stay in contact with the juice the darker the red wine will be it's also higher in 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 uh, biogenetic amines and that's a problem particularly for women so a lot of women we're the official wine at virtually every health conference in the u.s that i mean forward-looking health conferences biohacking conferences and upgraded labs and paleo fx and so on and so on. we did 140 events last year so we come in contact with tens of thousands of wine drinkers who are also interested in their health and very common women say they can't drink red wine you know, it makes them feel flush. It gives them, um, it gives them a headache. Well, usually, not always, but usually people blame that on sulfites. Well, sulfites are naturally occurring in any fermented food from kombucha to, you know, to sauerkraut. I mean, anything that's fermented has sulfites in it. And we can talk about sulfites in a second, but most people to say, I think it's because the sulfites are higher. Actually, sulfites are higher in white wine than they are red. And furthermore, but what's really making most people feel bad, flush, headache right here, tension in the front of their head, this is very common for women, is these biogenetic amines. And the two primary ones are tyramine and histamine. And these longer extractions exaggerate these biogenetic amines, which is why most women, a lot of women can't drink red wine. Now, when they drink our wine, they don't have the same problem. So that's, that's kind of a little bit of a winemaking lesson and kind of history of the natural wine movement. Yeah, no, that's, that's uh, very interesting. One thing you mentioned about this that I had a question on is the misperceptions or misconceptions about wines, and you touched on one of them, at least that I can recall is legs. That's always been, you go anywhere. We went to Napa a number of years ago. I live in Virginia. There's wineries all around and they talk about legs and that's kind of a sign of quality. And I thought I heard you say that's not necessarily. Well, it has nothing to do with it at all. In fact, I would tell you it's just the contrary. It just means that it has higher glycerol in it, which is a sugar byproduct. So it's not, has nothing to do at all with, and, and sugar, sugar, sugar makes wine thicker right? So the legs are just a thickness from, from the sugar and or glycerol. It's so not more, more legs, more sugar. Yes. Yes. Okay. It's nothing to do with quality. <clears throat> are there other misconceptions or perceptions around commercial wines along those lines? Well, uh, as I mentioned in red wine, you know, that, that, um, that it is uh, darker is thought to be better. Also people believe the more they pay for a bottle of wine, the better it is. There's no truth to that either. Um, but you, there are a ton of studies that if you put down two paper bagged bottles in front of groups of people and you tell one of them costs $15 and the other one costs $90, they will pick the $90, the better wine every single time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just, that's just not true. And, um, you know, long before I knew anything about wine, um, I mean, I often tell, you know, sometimes we, we make many purchases in life. Uh, we buy the more expensive product because we perceive if it's more expensive, it's better. Right. Right. Yeah. And if somebody's willing, if someone's willing to pay for this, then it must be better. 
right? And so oftentimes we use this higher price is better formula for not only purchasing wine, but lots of things, you know? So yeah, uh, you argue it's a corporate uh, marketing tactic as well as like higher price equals higher value. Yeah. You shouldn't have to pay more than $25 for a very high quality bottle of wine. And our wines average $22 a bottle. They're all the same price, but we also include shipping in that. And so okay. they're, they're like $25 a bottle, but that includes shipping. Shipping super expensive for wine because it's heavy. Right. And so along those lines, you mentioned shipping. So you offer a variety of packages. Is that right? We do, but they all include shipping. Okay. And so you can get what the six and the 12 and is it you, we have two primary offers. Now, if you're on our email list, you know, if you go to our site and you sign up to be on our email list, but you're not a customer, if you're on a, if you're a customer of ours or a member, you're going to, we're going to have your email list when you signed up for your, for your, to be a customer. But if you just signed up for our email list and didn't buy anything, you would get twice a month special offers from us that are not subscription related. If you go to our website, the only thing you do is join our wine club because that's our primary purpose. Uh, and we have about 100,000 customers in the United States. And so if you, you know, like 350,000 people on our email list. So if you are on our email list, you would see twice a month special offers. They might be holiday offers. They could be a, a theme on a country. They could be any number of different, any number of different kind of, um, packages, but they'll range from three to 12 bottles. Oftentimes we like right now, the current promotion we have is a three bottle is a three bottle promotion. Okay. Sometimes it'll be four. Sometimes it'll be six. Sometimes it'll be a 12 bottle option. If you subscribe, which you're a member, which is the, which is the least expensive way to get our wine is, uh, we don't do any discounting ever. We've never done a discount, but if you're a subscriber, and you get regular wine shipments, you pay less than, than taking a one-off purchase. But, and so six bottles is $159 and 12 bottles is $299. And you can have that on any frequency you want. You do it monthly, every other month, quarterly, twice a year, whatever frequency you want. And, um, and so that's, uh, you might imagine with the current state of the condition, don't know when this is going to air, but we're right in the middle of the, of the virus yeah, uh, issue at the moment. And uh, we are shipping a lot of wine, right? People don't want to be at home without wine. And so um, actually we're shipping more wine than ever. Um, so fortunately as a California essential business, our shipping operations can remain open to deliver wine to people's homes. And uh, since there's no risk of contagion through the box, then, uh, then, you know, UPS is delivering stuff to, people every day. So, but anyway, that, so we, you know, we have, uh, so the wine's very affordable for a, for a handcrafted fine wine product. I don't think you should, I, I personally, you know, I occasionally buy wine that's, that's maybe 30 or $35 occasionally. Um, but it's, you shouldn't have to spend more than $25 to get a very high quality bottle of wine. You wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't find that in the United States because land prices are too high. And um, so you, you, anything you're buying in the United States at, you know, 20 or $25 is not likely to be very high quality because it's going to be very mass produced at that price because right. you can't, you know, I think Napa wines average around $90 a bottle now. Right. So because land cost here is so high and then all across California land cost is just high. So you yeah. can't make a bottle of wine you know, you can't make a bottle of wine of any decent quality for that, that kind of money in, in, in California. I don't know about other parts of the U.S., but, you know, in Europe it's different because most of these small family farms that we deal with, and we deal with about 700 small family farms across Europe, and four in South Africa and a handful in Chile. These natural wine growers, most of them are multi-generational family farms. You know, they don't have any capital costs. They can afford to make wine very inexpensively. And then because we're the direct importer for most of them. So there's nobody between we're the only, we're the only party between the grower and the drinker. Normally there's like four layers of markup, 
Okay. Right. There's like a distributor, a wholesaler, a retailer. You've got, you know, you've got these, these, it's called the four tier system. It's the way alcohol is usually sold in this country. <clears throat> in this case, we're both the importer. We work directly with the family farm and then we sell direct to the drinker. We don't sell to restaurants or retailers. Right. So we can bring a much better fair price to the family farm. We can pay them more and then we can charge less for it, you know, to the consumer and still have, you know, a a healthy business margin for us to be able to operate our business. Yeah. That's a pretty impressive business model because you're, you're kind of hope this sounds in the way I mean it, but like taking the farmer's market approach and being able to bring these local growers and give them a platform of opportunity where uh, they're able to maintain their living and maintain their personal you know, ethos on how they want to live and grow their farms. Yeah, it's one of the most important parts of, of our mission and one that we're very proud about. I mean, we're very proud to be in the health business. We're very proud to bring a super superior product to the marketplace that people love. But one of the things that is really a foundation of who we are is that we get the great privilege of paying extremely fair market pricing to small family farms who would otherwise be squeezed out or squeezed by importers. We can also pay them faster, right? And on better terms, these farmers live kind of season to season, you know, check to check, if you will. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're small family farms. Usually everybody in the family works on the farm. Most of what they eat is either grown on the farm or produced by a neighbor. They're kind of like hippie fanatics. You know, they're living this kind of natural lifestyle. They're not, they're not business people. You know, they, they can't make enough, it can't make enough quantity. Most of them have other products, whether it be olive oil or maybe they um, even grow vegetables or work at farmer's markets or, you know, they're, these are not like businesses as you would know. Like when you come to Napa, you go to this fancy architecturally significant tasting room, right? And it's right. all about this kind of experience of, of the brand. When you go to a natural wine farm, there is no tasting room, right? I mean, if you taste, which comes much later in your visit, the first thing you do when you go to a natural farm, the first thing that you do always is the farmer wants to take you to the vineyard because he's a wine grower, not a wine maker. Wine's grown in the vineyard, right? And so he wants to talk about the soil. He wants you to hold the soil, see the soil. He wants to talk about the vines, age of the vines, biodiversity on the farm. You know, he, he doesn't, he or she don't, you know, they're not interested in, and then later you get to the wine tasting, which will usually be in their kitchen, or because they live on the farm, or it'll be in the it'll be in the cellar, you know, where they ferment and store wines, you know. So that's it's just a very different thing if you've been to American tasting rooms, and then or even like to Bordeaux or even other areas of Europe where or Burgundy where there are kind of these renditions of of tasting room experiences in more pedigreed appellations in Europe. But when you go to a natural wine, a, a natural wine farm, it's not anything like that. It's just very down home. It's very homespun, which is nice. Yeah, yeah it is. I mean, it, it's, it's just such a cool business model because it's, it's empowering the small business. It's uh, you know, helpful wine and uh, it's just gives you a great story behind it too. Um, so to close out, you know, we're running up on time. Uh, grateful for, time Todd but three quick questions what are you reading right now well I just finished two unusual books I don't normally finish them both about well actually one just ahead of the other um so they were both business books I don't read a lot of business books but I just particularly enjoyed these two one is by Stephen Schwartzman called what it takes uh excellence in leadership and the other one is uh Super, super entertaining. They were both very entertaining. The other one is called Am I Being Too Subtle by Sam Zell, who was the creator of the publicly traded real estate uh, investment funds. And uh, the super, super, they're both super successful multi-billionaires. But I, I, they were both had entertaining stories. Those were the last two books. That's, uh, but again, that's, 
and that is quite unusual. I don't normally read those kind of books. Uh, okay. My number one book is that I recommend to most people is The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And my favorite book that nobody knows is called The Master Key System. It was written in 1912 by Charles Hannell. And it was the foundation for what became the book The Secret and also uh, The Law of Attraction were both they were both um, inspired from the writings of this manuscript that was written in 1912 as a, it was a, it was a, a U.S. mail to your home 24-week correspondence course on the secrets of life and the secrets of manifesting your future. So anyway, this is written in 1912, but it's called the Master Key System, and then you know, many decades later, you know, it was, um, it inspired and both of them credit this book. It inspired the secret and the law of attraction by the Hicks. Okay, great. Uh, I'll definitely have to check out that last one. Um, what are you listening to right now? Music or podcasts? Well, um, I, I kind of got bounce around. Um, I, I, Oftentimes, listen to Audible or listen to books. So it's how I screen a book. So I probably listen to books more than anything, but it's how I screen a book because for me to actually dedicate the time to read a book, it has to be something that has granular and meaningful sort of actionable knowledge in it that I want to read and, and highlight and observe and take in at a deeper level. Most books are not like that. Most books I can get all I need from listening to them. So I'd listen to books very often. I'd listen to uh, EDM, electronic dance music when I run or work out. Sometimes I, and on podcast, I listen to, it might not surprise you kind of the regulars, you know, they're all health and performance. Okay. Probably Tim Ferriss most often, but there are others, you know, Rich Roll, um, Ben Greenfield, um, Dave Asprey occasionally, you know, just kind of the, you know, top of the charts. I also occasionally listen to business podcasts, but not often. Okay. I don't think about business in that way very often. I don't, I think mainly about how to create value for my customers is probably all I need to know, right. you know, is to practice peace and love in the world and try to be kind and try to add value. If you can do that, then, and you have, you know, the right business metrics, then you, you'll be plenty successful. You know, if you're focused on the value that you're delivering as opposed to, you know, when you're living a life of appreciation instead of expectation. So that I don't read a lot of I don't read, listen to a lot of business stuff. It's mainly about health and performance or meditation or um, this kind of thing. So it's kind of bounces around podcasts, books, Audible. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I live on Audible. Um, So last one, what is your go to rest and recovery approach? Well, wine, Uh, (laughs) sleep and meditation. Uh, It's, I think sleep is highly underrated. Meditation, I think is the single most important and profound biohack than anybody can practice. And so, and it requires a daily practice at my company. We spend the first hour of every day together, the entire staff meditating and having gratitude session. We oh, meet wow. at 10 in the morning and we don't actually start creating value in the world externally until about 11:15. So we meditate from 10 to 11. Sometimes it goes to 11:15. depends on what, how many people are there. So um, as a business leader, you've incorporated wellness as a corporate culture. We have, I mean, it's the foundation, this connection, this spiritual connection that we have. Uh, I mean, we believe in nature, just like in wine and nature, everything is connected. And so whatever energy we're emitting and, you know, whatever we're focused on or what we're likely to draw closer to us. And so we have a very spiritual practice of, of openness among, you know, and radical transparency and uh, which can be uncomfortable at times. Vulnerability is not easy, particularly in a business setting. No, you know, it is not. Especially when it's countercultural from the macro. Right. So that's, you know, so we, yeah, we live a very unorthodox. um, And if you want to read about it, 
you can go to our job postings. We constantly, I think we have eight positions open now, but we constantly have, we constantly have um, job openings and our job posting is 12 pages long for each job. And only about a page of that is actually the job description. The rest of it talks about our culture, our practices, our beliefs, our peace and profit manifesto, which is the document we use to make decisions with our nine, our nine codes of, of conduct. Uh, you know, so we live, you know, inside this very unique uh, vacuum of practices and beliefs and the foundation of them are this morning practice of being together every day for an hour. And right now, while we're separated, we're working remotely during the, during the virus meltdown, we're still, we're using zoom to, um, to continue our meditation and gratitude practice every morning. We just had uh, 40 people in this morning. That's amazing. That's awesome. Um, I may have to check out the job board. Um, Todd, again, thank you so much for your time. And I just personal anecdote. I got turned on to your wines. I've known about it, but a few months ago had dinner at friend's house and was like, this is totally different world. And, uh, you know, I would encourage everyone to, to give it an opportunity. Nice. Nice. Thanks for having me today, Scott. It was a great time. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really hope you got something out of the message from Todd. He is somebody that is passionate about wellness, about living a healthy lifestyle. And, you know, he's created a great company that offers those of us who are trying to improve on our quality of life and health and still be able to enjoy a good glass of wine with our wife or husband or just enjoying a good evening. So I would encourage you to check out Dry Farm Wines. You can actually find the link on my Instagram page, uh, the Restaurant Recovery Podcast on Instagram. There's a link in the bio. Go ahead, check it out and enjoy. Remember, be rested, be well.